0: Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host, as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 35 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'm thrilled to welcome Kelvin Giles. How are you doing today, Kelvin? I'm good
1: 35 of these you've done. Well fantastic. That's a great resource for 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 everybody. I mean the more we share the uh, even good and bad things the better. So 35 congratulations that's terrific.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And the the first question I'd like to kick things off with um is inspired by Simon Sinek's book but why do you do what you do? <laughs>
1: um because I'm probably just as daft as I was when I was 18 years of age, 55 years ago. Um, why? I, 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 get, I, do, I don't know why. I mean, I, do, I just get satisfaction and enjoyment out of, out of what I do. But, but remember, what I do has been changing. Uh, I started off as a, a, as a PE teacher and a volunteer coach. So I taught PE in schools and then I would run athletic clubs or rugby clubs after school. Um, and then, then I made a decision very early, uh, by being mentored by terrific people that I wanted to go down a certain direction I wanted to be the national coach for my country in athletics. And I embarked upon a long, long long-term process to, to try and get there. Uh, and so I started off as a volunteer coach, turning up every day that I possibly could to my local athletics club and just coaching, 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 and coaching and coaching badly, obviously to start with. Um, and then finished up becoming a full-time professional coach uh, in, in different countries and then moved on to becoming a, a more of a, a mentor and administrator, a, a, a manager of certain elements in certain organizations uh, as I got more experience. And then, but but my coaching then went back to being uh, a volunteer coach. So I have a main job uh, during the day, whatever that is. Uh, but I was then going back to being a volunteer coach. So I've already gone full circle. Uh, and coaching has always been something that that I've, I've always wanted to do. And I can't tell you why. What I, I could try because it was all down to two people, I guess. I mean, I was, I was being trained as a PE teacher back in the old days when we trained PE teachers to, to teach well with pedagogy driving the central elements of it and movement also being at the central elements of, of the, say, the 1958 curriculum that we all worked on. And I was at Maidley College of Education in Staffordshire, a, a terrific place with brilliant lecturers. And, and Ian Ward was one of our lecturers, and he was an ex-national coach for Great Britain Athletics, and he presented t- the teaching of athletics to us in such a way that I got more than hooked. It became an obsession. Uh, and then I met, w- within a short period of time, the great Wilf Page, who and both of those men, for some reason, took me under their wing and, and were really helpful to me in my first faltering steps as a teacher and a coach. So, and I have no idea why they were that kind to do that. But, but, but that, that drove me on more and more and more to be a better teacher and a better coach. And, and I don't think it's ever left me. I've always tried to do that. Now I try and without doing it in a formal way, I just try and help people like I was helped. And I I just try and share as much information of the things i got right and the things i got wrong, uh, that help the next generation through or although the next generation are in a completely different environment than I was when I first started, you know, teaching was good teaching and pedagogy back then. It's, it's no longer that anymore. It's, it's crowd control. So it it is a different environment, but people like myself that have been doing it a long time just might be able to pass on a comment or two or a, a lesson or two that can help people along this difficult pathway of being a, a good teacher and a, a good coach. So I guess that's a, broadly why I still do it after all these years.
0: It's lovely. And you mentioned crowd control there, which is something I definitely feel like I'm improving on now in a PE teacher world, rather than a strength and conditioning world. And you also mentioned on the podcast you did with Rob Anson, about making sure that kids don't have any limitations when they get into adult life, including, uh, behavioral limitations. Do you have any, um, words of wisdom or any advice when it comes to making sure that or trying to help kids ensure or to ensure your sessions are still achieving or still trying to get rid of these behavioral limitations i know that's a bit of a waffly question but
1: just no, no 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 you're right i mean i always say that there are, there are four pillars technical tactical physical and behavioral uh, and the, most of the times that they are technical uh, physical and behavioral, the tactical only comes in when you decide to to venture into the competitive sport environment. Uh, you might come across that so the, the technical stuff the, the movement patterns that you have to do to get uh, to get uh, any pr- progress in, in what you 're trying to do, uh, the physical qualities that allow you to do that movement pattern, and then the behavioral qualities that Really have a lot to do with the learning and the, these but and also are completely separate to it. Um, you, 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 we are all responsible for not developing just the technical and the tactical. If our job could be to get the behavioural elements of this young person in front of us on the right track and prepare them for adulthood to do things really well behaviourally, then not only will they benefit, but so will everybody else so 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 what i mean by the behaviours attitude commitment discipline perseverance those are the things that you you we, we need as parents and as teachers and as coaches and as organisations to have at the centre of what we're doing but we don't uh, I mean, you can go and do a coach education. You can go and spend another 250 pounds this weekend on a level one coach education stuff. It'll give you no tools whatsoever to handle the human element in front of you. Yet all coaching and teaching is about the, the the responsibility we have to that relationship that you've got to create with that person that you're trying to help and mentor and teach. And yet you're given no tools to do that. Uh, In fact, it's like being a parent. You don't get any tools for doing that. But the thing to do is just is to is to try and have a little set of tools in your toolbox that goes, okay, while I'm doing this, while I'm 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 doing this this PE lesson, this training session, uh, I'm gonna make sure I look for the opportunities for me to help them develop behaviorally or mentally or whatever you're going to be. So Attitude, commitment, and discipline are very general things. In other words, we've got to set an environment within which they, they've got to concentrate. They've got to show discipline. Uh, they've got to persevere when it goes wrong. Um, and so whenever I present a, a puzzle for them to solve in a lesson or a, a session of the part of their learning and they don't get it, there's a chance for me to influence their perseverance now, I can either blow up to them and tell them how bad they are and they're wrong, or I can learn to give feedback at the right time, at the right place, in the right way. So there's a, there's a pedagogical element going on in that that helps me help their behaviours. Now, now that you'll also get every second of the session the chance of working on those other behaviours that are more long-term or, or, or more uh, obtuse such things as as humility and integrity and respect that have to go on and that's the way that I behave in front of them but when they've got to wait their turn or when somebody gets it wrong and they start laughing or scolding them or what there's going to be opportunities all the time for us as adults to offer suggestions on these kind of behaviors as well because Everyone we've mentioned, attitude, commitment, discipline, perseverance, coupled with integrity, humility, and respect. Hey, wouldn't you like to know that that's what every person on this planet has got in in huge amounts? Because it's, it's not to help them clear that bar or put that shot or run faster or score that goal. It's about being a great human being because... If you want to stay in the performance elements, you will not achieve anything in performance without those aforementioned behavioral qualities. The thing is, I, I and I say a lot of this, that where are your reps and your sets for attitude, commitment, discipline, perseverance, uh, respect, humility. So it, Although there's no, you can't, look, there's plenty of textbooks out there that deal with this psychology of life. Blimey, I can't even understand the words in there. But we will have the opportunity, if you're willing, to look for them as a parent, a teacher or a coach or an adult to the group of young people in front of you. It will happen. But you've got to now start looking for those opportunities and then spending some time on them. Unfortunately, we're, we're never encouraged through our, coach education to spend much time on this. We're never given the tools to, to try to do that. So you have to pick this up yourself. So I don't know whether that's answered that point, but the behavioral stuff start looking for opportunity to have a crack at this before, during and after the lesson or the session. And, and, and it's quite simply, um, they can't lead two lives. They, they can't be a, a disciplined person in front of you inside your 60-minute, 75-minute training session and then be an absolute idiot outside it. For, for, and, and I'll bet you all, you'll ask me a question a bit later, and I'll, I'll see if I remember to come back to this point with that other answer. Uh, and let me just drop it in there now. The training session doesn't finish until they've recovered from it. It doesn't finish when you blow the whistle and walk off when they've recovered from what you they've just experienced when they've adapted to it is when it finishes. Now, if they walk out of your sight and then have very poor uh, patterns of behavior going on, it will probably spoil what you've just done. So we have to teach these qualities before, during and after the the session or the or the lesson. It's an ongoing mentorship of this young person. That's the way to look at the behavioural parts of it. I hope that's made some sense.
0: That's, no, I've, I've absolutely loved that. And I think you make a good point because it's so easy for, let's say you're a PE teacher and I don't know, you've got a specific, I don't know, sporting background and a kid who, I don't know, could be a bit challenging for, say, the maths teacher or the English teacher is then good in, I don't know, your PE lesson. Well, that's still no good because you want to make sure that they're the same person regardless. It's not just, oh, you've got a little bit of what you want, and therefore now you're going to give me the behaviours I want to see. That's, that's no good, and that's, that doesn't mean that I've done my job at all. So, no, I, I agree with that totally. And It's uh, hard work, though. Look, it's hard
1: work because it's never-ending.
0: No, it isn't. And, it's and, and
1: that means you need perseverance and patience as a teacher and as a coach to keep on doing this. And you're going to keep doing this for the rest of your life and for the rest of their life that you're going to be around them. I started working, my very first athlete I worked with was 11 years of age, uh, Austin Drysdale, at the Queensbridge School in Birmingham. And I was still working with him and being around him when he was a 17-year-old. And he he took the qualities that he learned, he took them into the rest of his life. You know, you want to be able to meet them 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and see that they're good people. And that the sport or the lesson or the physical activity that you help them through help them develop into being really good people hey forget how far they they threw how fast they ran I mean those are those are nice trinkets to to handle the job is to make them into real high quality human beings because and I've just said that before the if you want to put them in the Olympic arena they'd better be high quality human beings
0: yeah and it's one of those where those limitations are probably going to crop up further down the line, no matter how athletically talented they are. Pressure—the minute,
1: The minute we ex- as human beings experience pressure and reality comes out.
0: Absolutely. And you've spoken on your four pillar model that I've heard uh, several times, but one of the things I'm intrigued is obviously you said that the physical always has to be one step ahead uh, in an ideal world. Uh, could you potentially just give an example for the listeners of what that might look like? Uh,
1: I said this once when a mate of mine got in, got in touch with me and said, oh, I'm, you know, you're wrong. You're a coward. You've been cowardly. I said maximum anything is dangerous. Uh, and that is, I'm not saying that you shy away from maximum anything because The mountain that you want to climb towards performance or to human health and well-being is a tough old mountain to climb. And you're going to have to maximise some things along the way. But, for example, um, the highest number of injury rates in running activities, that's all our team and field and court sports where we're running, not sitting in a bike or on a bike or in a boat, um, is is a hamstring injury and it's caused very often if every physiotherapist I go to and doctor uh, that I I know have just dealt with a hamstring strain issue from a strain to to a level one, two and three hamstring problem of which it is a plague out there in every running activity that we do, they always track it back when they look and say, look, we think this was caused by and nine times out of ten, it's a poor movement pattern under speed, fatigue and pressure. Well, the one thing we can do is to say, well, our job, therefore, is to make sure that not only do we have a an efficient and consistent movement pattern that is appropriate, but it's also resilient. It's also strong enough and stable enough to be able to survive the robusting, robustness of, of the environment you're going to put it in. You're going to run fast, then you're going to run fast again, then you're going to run fast again, then you're going to run fast again because the bottom line, if you want to get fast, you better run fast. That is going to put a huge physical demand. So why don't we, before we go down that adventure, which is to expose the, the, the athlete the athlete's movement pattern to the, extre- the extreme forces that they will have to handle. We need to give them a resilience, a robustness that, that will help them survive this maximization they're going to have to experience. So we already know when it go why it goes wrong. We already know, for example, in swimming, swimmer's shoulder, and I'm, I'll be frank with you, I'm sick and tired of seeing uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old swimmers in their thousands suffering from swimmers' shoulder. And when, you, when all the physios and the doctors I've been speaking with and some of the more enlightened coaches, they're saying, well, what we're doing is we've got a very poor control of the shoulder. The, con- the shoulder joint is the strangest thing on the planet in terms of a joint it has it is has got to be looked at completely different to all the other joints in the body it's free floating it ain't attached to anything so and you decide therefore to to try and get the the, the swimmers into this pulling environment. They reach ahead and they pull whether they're on their back or their front, and that's going to mean the shoulder is going to go through uh a, a really specific range of movement, timing of movement, timing of force. It's going to be perfect. Now, if this is not pristine, and you belong to one of these swimming clubs where you get these idiots that are doing five, three to five thousand meters of swimming with nine-year-olds who have a poor movement pattern and who are not robust enough, you wonder. You, it, it doesn't take it doesn't take Einstein to tell you what's going to go wrong. Because what they, what they tend to do is because they don't know how to connect from, from their fingertips right through to their hips to connect that entire chain of movement from, from toenails to fingernails or from fingertips to hips and to connect all the way through the spine and up the musculature and uh, put all that together. If they don't know get that movement pattern right, then you find things like the rotator cuff – in the shoulder starting to do the work that other bigger muscles should be doing like lats for example a chest rhomboids trapezius the big slabs of meat that can hold everything together because you've got a poor movement pattern little tiny stabilizing muscles like the rotator cuff decide to join in because the other ones don't know what they're doing so again <laughs> we, we we can see that that having a poor movement pattern that is not robust and resilient enough to survive the traumas that the, the load is going to give them in even a simple thing like a swimming stroke leads to a problem. So that's why I've always tried in the last 20 years to say, keep their physical development one step ahead of their technical development so if they get the technical development wrong they have, they've got a chance of surviving it and the caveat that goes with that is one thing that volume has never been a biomotor ability never it never will be and it never has been just doing more stuff badly is the, ba- is the wrong thing to do. So get the technical model, get the conditioning inside. them. Conditioning not just mean cardiorespiratory, but mechanical conditioning, right down to the structural level of the strength and the stability and the range of motion, multi-directionally, multi-plane, multi-joint, multi-speed, multi-amplitude background. So now, no matter what they get wrong, as long as you're not overloading it with volume, they will probably have a much better chance of surviving it. So that's the argument or one of the arguments that go with build their technical ability, build their technical ability on top of a physical set of physical qualities, not the other way around. Not the other, People think that just by, if I throw a thousand baseball uh, pitches as a 12 year old, I'll get strong for throwing a thousand baseball pitches. No, you won't. You'll break the shoulder. So did that? Sorry, did that? Yeah. Did that get anywhere near you?
0: Absolutely, and you you've kind of knocked into a you've kind of knocked into a next question. I've just jotted down because um, seeing your when I first came across your five and five stuff and some of your other work, it made me think that do we rush that consolidation phase of movement? Like we think, right? Well, they did three sets of ten today, and it looked good. I don't know, it was Goblet's 10 kilos. So next week, let's go three sets of 10 with 12 rather than, for example, right, we might have consolidated the strength aspect of that movement, but can they do it at speed? Can they do it in different directions? And thinking, I think it's Verne Gambetta who says that strength is kind of this seductive metric in the sense of we can see it, we can conceptualize it and we can see it going up and we've got a nice number to it. Um, But your explanation there is, kind of opt into that which is great you yeah, what yeah what what verney's saying is absolutely spot on it's
1: because we we're too dumb to all the other elements of how we should be teaching and coaching for some reason we've got stuck with in the paradigm of strength being uh, the uh, external load that we can move as being the god and it isn't once you start putting movement at the head of your thinking and movement in every plane direction force amplitude speed Complexity, then you're on the right track. Seriously, then you're on the right track. But we have been seduced by the numbers that that are being strong. I mean, we can go down an entire pathway on strength and and realize how daft we can be on this. Get a move, get movement efficiency, consistency, and resilience at the centre of your universe. The rest will really fit onto that really well. You will find your that that. Just because, let's take a look at this one. Just because you taught it doesn't mean they learned it. Just because they did 10 kilos on this exercise today doesn't mean that you can move it to 12. You, you, where's your evidence? Your evidence is because some idiot told you that. Do you think that's the way to progress it? No, no. And, and the minute we move, on, this is the unfortunate thing of, of most of the research in the world. I was saying this today to another person that, the UK Strength and Conditioning Association and the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association and any other Strength and Conditioning Association is still at the center of its universe, has the power clean, has this, the, the second part of the pool as the center to all their research. It's built from that. Just because you me- you can measure that doesn't mean it's important. And we got stuck in that. And we still have entire associations revolving everything about Olympic weightlifting. Yet movement is that's just that is the tiniest little segment of a massive jigsaw that we want to look at. It's not even one piece. That movement in general is where it all starts. The strength component of that is one mere morsel of it. But we still fail to look at the entire paradigm of movement, efficiency, consistency and resilience and the width and the depth of what that movement vocabulary might look like. Well, it's never spoken about and and you're right to say that it's uh, we we jump forward too quickly and i and it, we have to be have an empathy for those people that make that mistake because the fixture list rushes you forward, the demands of parents rush you forward, the competition season rushes you for forward uh the end of the school term pushes you forward because next term we're not doing that sport anymore. We're moving to another sport and so on. And so you get these arbitrary uh, sections of or phases of, and we've got to finish by then. Why? I've got to write the reports. Hang on. That's not the way they're learning. The the way they learn and adapt, the, the person's only learned it when they've adapted to it. And maybe your timetable is wrong. And and this is this is the problem. It's it's a whole series of compromises that we've fallen for. Some of these compromises, the the management inside schools, it's got to such a disastrous level that you you throw something at the kids, you think they've learned it, and you move on to the next thing. And because some some idiot wrote that curriculum instead of having it being an open ended curriculum on movement efficiency, consistency, and resilience. And they having a side shoot being competitive games as it used to be back in the 1958 curriculum. But now the competitive games based curriculum in physical education has ruined things for 50 years. Now, we come back to the early part of our conversation. Don't wait for physical education or these decision makers to change it. Have you got a uh, have you got a lesson tomorrow you're, you're going to teach? On Monday, I will do, yes. On Monday, you've got a lesson on Monday. Here you go. And I, don't, I bet there's not an official person from the government come and watch you. You can do what you like.
0: <laughs> That's, do you know what he's... You go
1: and do exactly what is needed by these children and, and not what some idiot has written down in a curriculum. And then you'll save the day.
0: And do you know what? That was part of my motivation for being, uh, transitioning from Australia Conditioning Coaching to PE teaching. Because I was like, right, we'll get that first year out of the way where I'm told how it's supposedly meant to be. And then after that, I'm on my own and I can have control of my little bubble. And then, as we say, hopefully that size, of that bubble, if you will, will increase over time.
1: Hopefully, because, yeah, like I said, don't wait for the decision makers to do it for you. Be creative. Look, if you get it wrong you get it wrong. And then, then you'll try again and you'll get it right. And the kids will love you for it because it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, have, it's going to have variety in there. It's going to have little challenges that suit them and fit with them. They're not always going to try and be picked for the school team. They can find success and achievement by improving the way they do things. And you've, you've suddenly got your learning in a, into a much healthier environment. Uh, you're probably going to get told off for not doing the right curriculum, but, put up with it if you can
0: absolutely one of your one of many of your quotes that i'd love um is and i can't remember who this whose podcast this was from but this was from a few years ago uh there's no difference between an elite athlete and a person with no interest in sport and i think it was about uh, the idea of long-term physical development because we often think or kids or parents oh well my child doesn't want to be a professional this or an elite that so this long-term athletic development is irrelevant um Could you just talk a little bit more about, um, you mentioned efficiency, consistency and resilience. Why would that look the same, for example, for, I don't know, a kid who's a bit overweight and has no interest in sport versus, like you said, a kid who's pushing towards, I don't know, the school team or maybe dreams of being a professional athlete? Why does that journey start in the same place? Um, I, I guess...
1: I don't want to, can't go rambling on too much about this, but the, the journey does. Whether the journey is to well-being, which takes you from uh, your early uh, young adult life in your mid-teens and onwards, and into early adulthood, and then onto middle age and onto old age, uh, your physical well-being uh, is the most important thing you'll have on the planet and in your life. Uh, and you will get to the point when you are much older that you are going to wish that you had you had less musculoskeletal disorders and pain uh that you you'd learn to uh have a healthier view on life you'd stayed physically active that would have helped your uh things like for the ladies in osteoporosis and and bone density and all these things sooner or later it comes back to you so the journey to to this well-being is going to base, be based on two things. One, the metabolic efficiency of the body, the cardiorespiratory health of the body, uh, the, the ability to transport oxygen around the body all day, every day, to do physical work, to have a decent capacity to get through a working day, to go on a walk to, to, to the shops, to carry things, to lift things, to reach, to turn um, – just to go through life and do like go up and down stairs carrying things, uh, to walk briskly when you've got to catch a bus, and all these little things. We want those to be really efficient, and so your ability to have a a a fitness about you, cardiorespiratory fitness, uh, is just to go through life is is vital. But if you look at the way the world is is at the moment, where we have one of the greatest killers on the planet is cardiorespiratory disease because of a sedentary lifestyle and absolutely atrocious eating habits, then that's killing people. And it also is a byproduct of that. You've got the obesity question that comes with that. And then that that opens the door to type 2 diabetes. And so you go, hang on, what's sitting at the back of this? A very strong cardiorespiratory system, which means you've got to stay active to look after it. You need to get into a good habit of doing that. Oh, Okay. Well, there, there, there's some pretty good reasons and there was some great research out of some Irish secondary schools about five years ago when some of these young men were tested, cardiorespiratory testing, and they had the cardiorespiratory responses of 60-year-olds because they were leading a sedentary lifestyle, because the physical education became optional, because they were, they just got into the wrong habits. So cardiorespiratory This is the first, one of the few first generations that we've got now and the last two who may not live as long as their parents from a cardiorespiratory response point of view. Excuse me? Is that not serious enough to start looking at how we should look after children? So that's the metabolic part. Now, what about the mechanical part? And I'm going to guess this. Loss of work days through musculoskeletal disorders, Bad backs, arthritis, this is hurting, that's hurting, poor knees, whatever you want. The musculoskeletal problems is costing the national health eight to 13 billion pounds a year. As well as how much pain are these poor buggers going through all day, every day because of their musculoskeletal disorders? that was created because they never had the strength and the stability and the range of motion of their whole musculoskeletal system. They never exposed it to any type of advance or some training. Hey, they'll go and put their car in for a service. So just from these two points of view, whether, just just going on to well-being, Let's just imagine what we need to do to make sure we're going to set th- ourselves up for our future as adults. OK, change me hat. Olympic Games. You want to go to the Olympic Games? Guess what you're going to need to start with? Mechanical efficiency and, and metabolic efficiency. Without that, forget it. You, no matter whether you're on a bike in a boat whether you're running whether you're you're shooting through a hoop whether you're hitting with a stick wh- whatever you're going to do whatever you're going to whether you're running jumping throwing kicking catching striking flotation you're going to need mechanical and metabolic efficiency not just efficiency you're going to need mechanical and metabolic excellence repeatable excellence but did you notice it's the same start as the journey onto, onto uh, having a quality adulthood for your musculoskeletal and metabolic? It's, it's the same start. So why have we ruined it by saying all of this is for getting you in the football team and getting you into a competitive sport? Why have we lost? Why didn't we just leave it and say our job by the time they leave school is to give them mechanical efficiency consistency and resilience and metabolic consistency, efficiency, and resilience. That's what, that's our job. We're going to do that. What they do with it later on, whether they go on a journey to competitive sport or just stay in sport till they're 60 or 70, or they climb that special mountain of the small number that are going to go on to high performance, elite performance. We don't have the right to make that choice. All we have to do is to give them the tools to go along that journey. Everybody's going to go on the first journey to to well-being. So why doesn't that reflect it in the way that we we introduce physical activity to children in schools and in clubs? Why isn't it that nice general uh, all-round development area? Because it, it starts general and then goes on, and that general efficiency and consistency and resilience can go on to well-being. If it's in a sporting environment, then it, the general then moves to something called a related area, where it gets a little bit closer to what a certain sport might want to do. You see a bit more running and jumping and throwing and kicking and catching and striking. It's like related movements. And then finally, it makes, the, it makes that big jump into the specific movements of high-performance sport. But it starts with the general one and it's the general one that we stopped doing 50 years ago and we're paying the price for it now. And I've just rambled for five minutes. I'm
0: sorry. I, I, I love it. Funny enough, that was going to lead into my next question, um, which is talking about general versus sports related versus sports specific and uh, trying to have those conversations with coaches or other teachers as to why, for example, I don't know. You're on a football lesson, whatever. A swimming lesson, whatever. Um, as to they look at your session, like, well, this doesn't look like swimming. Or where's the ball? Um, how do you convince coaches that the stuff that looks nothing like the sport is actually developing that movement base for the sports related and then the sports specific stuff?
1: So if if you accept general to related to specific is the journey, and the specific is going to be. Um, the qualities of the specific will be determined by the stage before. That's the, that's the related stage. And the quality of the related stage will be determined by the, of what the stage before that, which is the general one. So because the principle is this, what has gone before affects what is yet to come. So if we want to look at a high performance operation going on, whether it's a a 16-year-old soccer player, a 12-year-old soccer player, they're in, for, to them, that's high performance. They're in a game now. They're competing in the game. Everything they're doing is at competition-specific level. Well, we have to give them the tools to, to do that. And that means that we need tactical, technical, physical and behavioural going on. The minute you try and ignore any one of those or any two of those, as we often see, because in some sports, all I see is technical and tactical, And and then your fingers crossed and it's never worked. Once you accept the four pillars, then it's a lot easier to present the case for how should a session look if it's going to contain all four pillars. Now we've already said that the behavioral one is one that hovers around and is there all the time. It's not as if there are reps and sets. It's there for us as quality teachers and coaches to recognize a chance to, to deal with a, a, a humility situation or a respect situation or a perseverance situation or a discipline situation. You know, we, we'll see those. So it comes down to three more technical and tactical and physical. So, What we can start to do is if you could win those arguments, remember you'll go through life and you will lose more arguments and you'll win. But nobody's going to stop you on Monday from doing this. Ask the question, where was the physical part in there? And the the basis to all all sports are foundation movements of squat, lunge, pull, push, brace, rotate, hinge and landing. Uh, There ain't any more. All varieties of those and all their hybrids and all their complexities are what form the reservoir from which uh, we we, we run, jump, throw, kick, catch, strike and land. Right. Uh, And flotation work. So if you if you just get that, then all we start to do is say, well, so I, I see where you've got your technical and your tactical. Where's your physical? And that's where I would try and win the argument, because you're up against dopey people who are just so stuck with their limited look and things. We managed, in some cases, to put things called movement breaks inside the session. And that's where the five-in-five five came from. Can you give me... I went to a professional soccer club in, uh, when I was working back home, all right? I was back home from 2008 to 2016, uh, just, just going around the country doing stuff. And I did a uh, an operational review for one of the Premier League soccer teams, and um, they'd got a a coach in there, and uh, w- they suffered tragic levels of injury, soft tissue injury, uh, and they could be tracked back to the fact that the players uh, were suddenly going in an off season from nothing to three sessions a day and two sessions a day because that's the way the coach had always done it. And the coach was warned that, I'm sorry, but if you're going from zero to two sessions a day, we'll give you five days and you're going to lose half the players. They are not robust or resilient enough to handle that. No, no, that's the way we're going to do it. We'll get them fit. And so off they went. And within uh, three weeks, uh, 19 of the... 24 players in the in the first team squad were injured. And so the strength and conditioning coach, or the fitness coach, got it in the neck. It was his fault. Nothing to do with the, the boss. And I was lucky that I was going through the place at the time. And I, I just spoke and said, look, can you give some more time to this injury reduction, if you can? Uh, how long do you need? An hour a day. No, no not an hour. And we got it down to, we got 20 minutes a day. Now, in those 20 minutes, we could do over 300 movements, squatting, lunging, pushing, pulling, bracing, rotating, hinging and landing. We could do that. And they were training five days a week. We were getting 6,000 movements a month being done. If we choose the right movements, which are those movements which are at the basis of all these injuries, and the injuries were lower limb, groins, the Pubalgia situation for, for the groin area, uh, a doctor attachment, uh, pubic symphysis work, and conjoint tendon stuff, and hamstring and calf. Now, them, them that that was ninety nine percent of the injuries, all brought on by overloading a poor movement. And so we managed to get twenty minutes a day, sometimes only fifteen because you know, if if anything was going to be cancelled, it was this. We presented it in such a way to the players. You know, you've got to win the players over. They don't want it. The players just want the ball. But when we started mentioning to the players that, you know, this could get you selected into the first team, this could get you a new contract if you're not injured, if we chose our words right. And so you you saw this incredible – and that 20 minutes started to grow a little bit more because the player power came in. They started feeling like they were getting better, more resilience came on, and we reduced those injuries down. So you're not going to get a quantum leap change, but all you want is a few minutes. Seriously, in 10 minutes, you'll do 150 movements. Choose the right movements and teach them very well. That will build up a mechanical resilience base for these people on the way. So it's a compromise. You'd like to have a whole day three times a week doing this, but you're never going to get it. So, sorry, I've just, I've probably gone off at a tangent there,
0: but. Oh, no, that's nice. The, that leads kind of into uh, my next question, which is around the notion of deliberate practice versus gamifying movement skills. So, just to give you a bit of context, um, when I've, for example, if I'm working in a strength and conditioning setting, then rightly or wrongly, I'll do more deliberate practice, right? These are the technical points. This is what I wanna see. Uh, whereas, from a behavioral perspective, with some of my PE groups, that's just not going to work so i'll try and sneak the movement pattern in within a game and try and constrain the game so that you might see it um so just out of interest if you can cast your mind back to what you've the years you were delivering what you've just said was presumably that was more deliberate practice if you're trying to get through all those movements in that short block of time yeah, they were very
1: specific. They weren't. They weren't adapted. But then, let me just move that on. Then, uh, as as the the coach began to soften towards this and and see results, um, and, and not just results that were measurable, uh, but the 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 attitude of the players changed. Uh, they were more. Uh, they weren't rejecting it. They were talking about it a lot more. They were coming back for more. Um, and, and and he picked this up. So there was, there was a much healthier view of this going on. So we had to try. And what happened then was the next thing that the, the fitness or the strength and conditioning guys could then begin to bring things into the warm up. So now, now the warm up is, so if you call that general movement here, which is in the the in this just mechanical efficiency part, then it became related. And so. And, and one of the best ever is Mick McDermott, right? Mick McDermott looks after the Irish club in Belfast, begins with G, Glen Torren, yeah. right? Mick has just got the, got the job a year ago as the new boss of Glen Torren. Now, me and Mick go back a long way in terms of all this movement stuff. And in terms of the world of foot, association football, of soccer, Uh, This is a man that really has had to fight to get this movement stream woven into the world of of football. Because you did go through the stage of everything with the ball. It came out of Holland. uh, And I know here in Australia, we had the the head of uh, a Dutchman came in and he said, nobody ever goes to the gym again. No more of this physical stuff. It's everything with the ball. I mean... Spare me! I mean, I c- couldn't believe it. Kids who couldn't walk, talk, and chew gum at the same time—you wonder why you've got the entire pubalgia problem when th- their 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 hips are just not strong and stable enough to keep on standing on one leg kicking for for hours and hours and hours. And you wonder why you've got this in, th- this plague of injuries uh, through the groin. Um, so. Mick had to keep on finding and fighting every coach he worked with to find these small little bits. So you, you he would de- design a part of the warm up. Now Mick had got these small 10 minute, 15 minute units of movement that he could drop in anywhere, 15 minutes anywhere in the week with a professional team. I worked with him in, in, at Alain in, in the Middle East, in, in Abu Dhabi um, and he was the head of fitness. And I went there and I took over as performance director. So we, we, I did 10 months of trying to get them to move things forward. And we always had to fight the coaches uh, because they because they didn't understand any of this. So we had to work two places. We had to educate them and try and get them to understand. And Mick had to find the places. And when he got hold of the warm-up, then you could start seeing how he could have a warm-up. But within the warm-up was a a... Uh, and um, a modified movement pattern, so it might be within a game of one a, a, a one and a, a three two versus one relay going on, where that what would they would have to do would not only just be passing the ball for the competition specific element of it, which was to, to, the ability to give and receive a pass, um, but they also, when they'd done that, they had to do three squats, and then run sideways to the other end. And he would start dropping in small little mini packages uh, of, of of those kind of things. And it was all it's very discreetly done of, of just trying to move so he'd got the general movement going on here. Then he got this related one in the warm up. And then he would even and this is goes on to what happened with Australian hockey at the national level. They actually wrote in that at every national level training session there will be three six-minute movement breaks. Now, that was Phil Moreland convincing athletics hockey, uh, Australian hockey, to go down a different pathway. He won the battle. So at national level, every national squad training session would have three six-minute movement breaks inside it. And the reason was because none of these kids could move well. So when, when were you going to – you can't keep ignoring it. And Phil – by, by brilliant presentation, by winning arguments, by showing opportunity and changing it, went through a whole phase when he was in charge of, of, of giving over to these related and specific movements that, that were required. So there isn't one way of doing it. You've got to creep it in. You might find a, a 10 minutes here, five minutes there, a minute or two there to have the opportunity. And if you present it in a way that's fun, enjoyable as well, the, the players will adapt to it. And as long as you can, you can explain why you're doing it, the chances are you could get it taking place inside one of these sessions, which is usually everything with the ball. Um, and and I, So you, you won't win every argument straight away. But there are. you share this now. You, you get in touch with Mick at Glen Toran uh, and pop across there and say, well, show me what you mean, Mick. And he'll show you thousands of ways that he's incorporated without losing sight of the fact that Saturday you'd better win.
0: Yeah, and that for me is where the magic happens. I know if I can disguise a drill in such a way that the pupils aren't saying, oh, are we playing a match? If I can disguise it well enough where they don't start asking those questions in the warm-up, then I know I've done something right.
1: Yeah, so a guy like uh, Andy Thompson in in Miami and Greg Thompson in Ann Arbor, Michigan and and Mick in Glentoran Uh, You watch them in the soccer environment. You watch the way they've had to find the way of sneaking this in under the radar, not just for the the other coaches, but for the players as well. Remember, the players just want to turn up and play football. So because we've created the monster of sports specific, uh, we've now got to treat it as a monster and, and we can't give up on trying hard, really hard all the time to win this battle. And you you win it in small degrees. You never win it overnight. It it won't be won in my lifetime. It might be in yours.
0: If I've got anything to if I've got anything to do with it, it will be. Um, my last couple of, or well, my final question before the sort of outro questions is: and This is something I've thought about myself. As strength and conditioning coaches, PE teachers, will use terms like physically literate, and when we talk amongst ourselves, we all feel like we understand what the other person means i've almost got it in my head that for example if you've got a kid from say 11 to 18 in a school to college setup what would 18 well they've gone through seven years of a physical education curriculum what literally would the physical literacy look like like how would that be measured assessed and even logistically would that be something that you i don't know test at certain times in the year or you know how yeah. would that massive task be potentially broken down?
1: Yeah, one of the one of the things, if we want to win this battle, we, we have to show that whatever program we put in place is working, uh, because the powers that be will want to prove it. I mean, you can get, the, you've got the reading age of children, you've got their numeracy, and their literacy examinations. You can give them to show they got an A, B, C, D, E, and F, and we. We've got this clumsy way in the physical areas of doing sit-ups and push-ups and how many can you do? And, you know, the, the, the real absolutely stupid ways of doing fitness tests. Look, it, it's got some value to it. I mean, I think for, for kids to be out of the yo-yo or the beep test and to have a very high standard of that, we should, we should hold them to those standards. We should have a cardiorespiratory system that is all-powerful. We should give them the opportunity of doing that because for, for, for the – Diabetes, the obesity, the, the physical literacy, the long-term development of them, their cardiorespiratory response and cardiorespiratory health. For goodness sake, it's got to be more important than anything else. So why not have uh, some means and tool to do that and to measure it and the yo-yo and the beep test? Well, what's wrong with those? They're, they're perfectly all right. The thing is, none of the kids will like – some of these, you can't do it very well because the kids don't like it. It's fairly tough. It's maximal, but there's got to be ways that we we just it's a way we present it. So I can think we can do it. So physical literacy from the metabolic point of view is quite simple. You need to, you you've got to build up a work capacity that you can recover from. And and what standards we be put at different age groups is is would have to work those out from a mechanical point of view. I don't think it is. It, it's got to start with not how many push-ups and how many sit-ups you can do and what your jump and reach is and, 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 and what your standing long jump is. Those are byproducts and things that we could put in later on of a simple movement. Now, I, part of me wants to say, stop we're wasting all your time measuring this stuff. I mean, why are you measuring it? You're measuring it so you – just because you can measure it doesn't mean it's important – very often in our coaching and teaching, we are making a decision based on our coaching and our teaching eye that that is a satisfactory movement. If that was right. I am a professional. I think that these three people over here can do that movement extraordinarily well, and I'll give them an A for it. But we've got a group of people over here that, that, they, that I need to give them extra work. I'm, I'm using my experience of seeing thousands and thousands of thousands of squat, lunge, pull, push, brace, rotate, hinge, and landing, that these movements are acceptably been done at an acceptable level. Now you can add on, well, how many of these can we do? I mean, I think you can move towards that. So you've now got the first one is can they do the movement, which is mechanical efficiency? Can they get in the right position? Then you've got mechanical consistency. Can they do it again and again and again and again and again? You know, you want to walk up a flight of stairs, triple flexion and extension. Up a set of 50 stairs, 50 times, triple flexion and extension. You go to a 50, it's no use getting a heart attack on the way up, and it's no use twisting your knee on the way up. Because, so we do have to look at the consistency part is doing these movements many, many times. And then as the resilience of it takes it to another level can we put this under pressure and under speed uh, under fatigue so if you if you understand you got general to related to specific which is a set of tools you could bring you've then got mechanical efficiency can they do it once can they get into that position and hold that position for a period of time every single time effectively well that's mechanical efficiency mechanical consistency is now can you do it again and again and again and again and again now, how many agains? I don't know. But if you're going to explore consistency, it's repeating. It's having repeatable excellence in that movement. So that's another set of variables of, of how we can measure it. And then finally, for the, those who survive the journey, it's mechanical resilience under speed, fatigue and pressure of some way or form. So without me now telling you how to do that, once you've got that framework of efficiency, consistency and resilience, you can design, if you have to, if you have to go and measure all this stuff to satisfy some ego of some statistician somewhere and not trust the person to be able to give a, a, a subjective evaluation of where these children are. And, and let's be frank, I wouldn't want any PE teacher modern day to assess my children. I mean, they are completely, hopefully, they'll never have a chance of doing it. They have got no idea. They're pseudo-scientists. They've got no idea what they're looking for in movement. So I wouldn't let them do it. So it doesn't mean we need to train people. And I made that, I made that early clumsy attempt at, when I wrote that manual on physical competence assessment of doing the first part. What does this look like? Does that squat look efficient? Can they do that? Can they get in that position and move through that position? Yep. And I, I did that through my physical competence assessment. And when people say, should I do that with my class? I say, no. Don't, don't waste the time measuring the bloody stuff. Teach, sp- use that measurement time to teach it to them. And that's that, th- there's that strange problem if we give if we give our time over to all what the the assessors want to happen to measure it all to give us another bloody bell curve to give us an average for all these children and there's no such thing as an average child we just waste all our time doing that we we become it's a paper chase but if 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 we can ever get to the point and that's where it's a, it's i don't think it's that clumsy but the competence assessment is squat lunge pull push brace rotate hinge and landing Can you test it? How do you test it? And how do you give him a mark out of five for it? We've got that. If that's something you want to do, then and have that as part of your physical assessment for your PE lessons, by all means, do it. But you want to tell me how you're going to do that for 40 kids?
0: (laughs) It's it's funny you say that, (laughs) because I remember my uh, role at an all-girls school and my first session, I was like, right, let's test the overhead squat. And before you know, you've got one kid with a dowel messing around. And then you've got 30 kids waiting. And I'm like, this is stupid. I'm not, no, this is, uh, I'm not going to do so this. Can
1: I just, can I just jump on that a second? There's something which I've offered to, to really every national governing body I spoke with in the UK and I've, I've been speaking with over here. And that is to say, look, if we run the course on visual competence assessment for 30 or 40 of your students in your university that are, uh, you know, the, the ones that are going to be teacher trained or they may go on to do their PGSE or they they may go on to coaching, but they've got their human movement degree or whatever. Give them the physical competence assessment. And we did this at, uh, with Andy Thompson at North Glasgow College. And we had, I don't know, probably had uh, 50 students in there. And we gave them 30, uh, 12 weeks, three hours a week of how to measure physical competence and how to teach physical competence. And suddenly in that one place, there were 30 students that were skilled in doing physical competence assessment. So we said to Scotland, we said, look, you've got 30 people here. Hire them out to every school so they could turn up on Monday to your lesson and you've got 35 kids in it. They could turn up 30 of them en masse and in one lesson give you the full physical competence assessment. You can't do it. You've got crowd control. You're not even going to be teaching on Monday if the national governing body or the the, the the government started putting out a qualification in competence assessment, it's the beginning of looking at how we measure physical literacy. But now it just happened here in Australia. They've written this new page after page on what is physical literacy. Fantastic. Well, can you tell me how you're going to teach it? Oh, no, we don't know how to do that. No, no. We'll tell you what it is, though. So, y- y- you can't, you can't do the measurement Because you don't have the time to measure it And certainly you don't want to take the time Off teaching it to measure it So I would trust your own eyes If you decided for your year sevens That um, you're going to do squat Push And pull Just three There's 80 odd altogether Just choose three Squat, push and pull We did this at uh, Stevenage High School. We taught the kids to do it. And the kids did the assessment. Now, they might have not got it perfectly right, but they were pretty damn close on what the... Because the assessment is, read that sentence, can they do that? No. That's a cross. Can they do that? Yeah, tick. How many ticks do you get? Three. Three out of five. And And they did it with each other. The kids were hooked on it. So it... So there's all sorts of ways that we've got to do – things we've got to do first before we say, how can we measure physical literacy? And when should we measure physical literacy? It's going to start with you making the decision, using your coaching eye to choose within your class on Monday who can squat and who can't. That's as much as we've got because nobody's gone down the pathway of of really understanding not what what is physical literacy – but then how do we measure it is, is an important thing to, we've got to consider. But unfortunately, the scientists will get hold of it and the pseudo scientists will get hold of it and we'll spend all our time. It's, it's like this thing. And it happened in my lifetime when I went into a school and they were doing physical education and there was a textbook. A textbook on physical education in high school, in, in secondary school in, in Great Britain, a textbook. These kids could read and tell me about aerobic and anaerobic. And they could even tell me about something called the Krebs cycle. They were that good. They were year 10, I think. And I watched them walk up the stairs and were gasping for breath because they were so unfit. Because some idiot turned physical education into an academic subject. And that's my worry about measuring physical literacy. Maybe several decades from now when we've got a really good system in place we can measure because we can call upon specialists to come in and do the measurement for us then i think we can go down that pathway but until then just use your coaching and your teaching eye to assess it
0: yeah no and from that uh, mistake of trying to assess the girls on the first session i was like right well we're just going to use the training time to assess you and in the sets and reps and the how the quality of movement looks, that's our assessment. And it will happen each week, whether you realise it's happening or not. There you go.
1: Let's go go back to that Premier League club. When we we did an assessment of them on squatting and lunging, we did the things from the navel down. And the ones that really came out poorly, we put them into group one. In group two were those that could move relatively well. And in group three were those that could move extraordinarily well. And nobody – and when we said to them, by the way – we're putting you in group one because you can't walk, talk and chew gum at the same time. What have I got to do to get out of group one? I don't want to be in group one. Well, we'll spend some more time with you on doing this. Take this home. Here's a video from the five in five on what I want you to do in your, in your front room back home. Cause we've got, what is it? Uh, 24 varieties of the squat running through that. Just go and practice that at home. So by our coaching, eye, we put them into the different categories. And in the end in I think by the October we had nobody in group one and nobody in group two that's how that be the, that that's the, the guys there at the club had presented it so well it hooked the players their language and their vocabulary on how to present it it hooked them and the same the way Mick McDermott hooked his players into wanting to do this the assessment was easy then sorry I, I butchered him no that's great I mean funny enough I was
0: literally thinking that a couple of minutes ago when you were saying like For example, could the kids be sent a five-minute homework task? Here's the key points of the squat. Record yourself. Give yourself a mark. Tell yourself where you need to improve. And, I don't know, send the video in so we can compare as an extension. There
1: there you go. Greg Thompson across in Ann Arbor Elementary School PE, he he set up his own uh, YouTube video stuff. So when the kids were on holiday, he would give the task is, I want you to make up some more movements to do with the squat. And you'd have to send it in. And even got their mums, and and so you'd see the kids on the beach doing a new type of squat, an offset squat or an overhead squat or a a squat carrying a bucket or whatever it was, Uh, one leg off the ground, anything, they were just making these new ways of squatting up and they had to send them in. And they got their parents to do it as well because they love technology. Nothing better than than, uh, using TikTok and Instagram to say, okay, make up a new movement that's got a squat and a push in it, send it in. And we'll, we'll see which one is the most, the most uh, I- enjoyable or the, the most complex or the funniest. And now, you, you the minute you, you minute you do that, they'll start doing it at home. And that's where we then put the five in five uh, at the Camps Hill uh, School in uh, Stevenage. And this one class, we put the five in five on every one of their phones and tablets that the kids had got. And the three quarters of the class had got it. And they took it home for homework.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that's fantastic. Greg Thompson's movement of the dad. I think I stumbled across it a couple of years ago from a Vern Gambetta podcast. But that's that's the way we should be going. Meet kids at their level. Yes, technology has maybe its downsides, but. Stuff like what you've just said <laughs> you there is absolutely. Seriously,
1: fun. Greg, Greg's gone mad with it. The stuff that the kids are doing is unbelievable. They're making up. They've gone way past five in five now. These these kids are making up stuff which is like NASA. They're brilliant because I, he's hooked them. The way he teaches, he's hooked them into this of enjoying it. Of enjoying the. It's, it's not me, they're not measuring it all the time, but they are. These kids are physically literate. They really absolutely.
0: are. And uh, just in wrapping up, one of the questions I'd love to ask all guests is if you could spend uh, a period of time observing one coach, either, for example, could be in a PE context with young children, could be elite athletes, whatever you prefer, uh, who would you like to observe and why? Well,
1: I won't give you a great answer on this, but this is a great one to me. In the last couple of days, uh, Mike Winch, you know Mike Winch? Uh, along with Jeff Capes Led shot putting in Great Britain Back in the 70s and the 80s um, uh, Been coaching The rest of his life uh, Him and Peter Scott have been working with the uh, British shot putter Sophie McKinna Recent times and stuff has come up on, on Facebook showing Sophie In, in some thro- indoor throwing Using different implements And Mike was putting forward the, the innovations They're trying to bring together uh, To get her to do all the things She's got to do Uh, And she she looked absolutely terrific the other day uh, with a four kilo shot, just the way she crossed. And there's innovations on how she's trying to learn these new things. She's got to go from an 18 meter plus, you know, she's got to get over 20 meters. And I'd like to, having seen what they're trying to do, I'd like to be there with Mike Winch and Pete Scott and say, okay, I want to watch how you're doing this. What activities are you giving her? What cues are you giving her? When she does it well or she, if she does it right, what do you say? When, when do you say? If she gets it wrong, what's going to happen? What are you going to do next session if she gets it right? That, only because that's topical, uh, you know, I've just been watching and exchanging some, some thoughts with, with Mike on what he's doing with this shot putter and, and his, his coaching colleague. And that they are facing exactly what we all have to face. We've got to try and get this person better. So where, where do you start? What words do you use? Why did you choose that as being the starting point? How are you describing it to them? And how are you, how are you setting up the learning environment? All that stuff. And it's, I'm not saying I don't go to the, the three A's handbook on shop putting, the answers aren't in there because this is a unique individual. Overcoming one unique set of issues, and another shot putter could walk in the circle with, with Pete and Mike, and that have to be completely different. And and I want to see the more I see how people overcome. We all see the same problem, but you have to overcome. Every athlete is unique, and I think what this leads to is is, and that's one of the strange things I say. You need a wide and a deep toolbox of coaching and teaching because. You'll have to come out with a completely different answer. If, if Sophie will come back to the session to that today, maybe, and do the same thing, completely different. Go on in. Now what are you going to say and what are you going to do? This is the, the magic of coaching and teaching is understanding and having the open-mindedness in front of you of making the next decision that's appropriate. And it changes every day. So tomorrow, I might want to go and see somebody else do something. Uh, whenever every, I'll come and watch you teach on Monday would be as beneficial as anything, that, that, as anything. So I, I don't think there's any one special. Every time somebody creates a learning environment for an athlete is something I can learn because it would have never happened before on this planet. That circumstance would be completely unique and different. And that's when I learn who the good coaches are because they don't just fetch the same one tool out of their toolbox. They go in there and they come out with something different. And that's the, that's the, the joy. And there's my answer to your very first question. Why do I still do that? Why do I still do this? Why? Because everything's new every single day.
0: I mean, I feel like, I feel like that's a great way to wrap up because, uh, I always think to myself when people say, oh, being a teacher, once you get your first year out of the way, it's easy. All your lessons are planned, your schemes are work. And I'm like, do you realize how many moving parts there are? And that my year sevens this year are going to have totally different personalities, movements, yes. physical capabilities than yes. my year sevens last year. It's not a drag and drop. It's not a PowerPoint presentation. No,
1: no. I've got a 12-year-old, uh, she, she's a, an athlete and she's a swimmer. She spends part of the year as an athlete and part of the year as a swimmer. And we've just moved from being the swimming, the athletics part, into the swimming part. And it's about technique stroke development. And we're working on her freestyle and what the catch is, how she goes through the catch. And I, know, I think I know a little bit about this, the, the strokes, the backstroke and the, and the freestyle that she, 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 she likes. I think I know a little bit. Um, and the catch... The mechanics of the catch will never change. You know, you've got to be out of I won't describe what it, what, what it looks like as a, as a freestyle catch and pull. That, that will. When you write it down, it's the same thing. She, she came out uh, Friday night and did that and came up with a slightly different interpretation of what that pull should look like. The previous Monday, completely different her response was completely different in terms of how she felt and what she did and how she responded to it. Monday, it'll be completely different. Hey, the technique hasn't changed. Her interpretation, she's a bit stronger. She's a bit fresher. She's had a different day. She's had a tough day. She's, she's 12, puberty's in there. There's all the rest of it going on. If I've only got one tool in my toolbox, I've just lost this athlete. I got no chance. And that's the excitement of you on Monday. Uh, yeah, write your lesson plans, but write them in pencil.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, finally, how can I'll chat I'll briefly say goodbye off air? But uh, how can people either reach out to you or find out more about the information that you've put out over the years?
1: Uh, I, I have a website and it sounds important. It <laughs> not Uh, I I do. I had, I've got some, I've written a few books, which is just, it's not, I'm not an author. I just try and write down all the stuff that I've done and see if anybody's interested. So I've got those books and I've got worldwideweb.movementdynamics.com. And on there. We've got the five in five. We've got all the video libraries that we we keep on developing if we can. Uh, And I've written some of this stuff down in books on there. And I'm not a salesman at all. I, I think that's the right website.
0: So. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm 99.9% sure it is, but either way, I'll uh, I'll pop it in the show notes.
1: Well, look, you don't you don't have to. It's all right. It's all right.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Kelvin.
1: No, it's been it's been great talking to you. Now you you got in touch, and you, when you said that you've moved. You've got you've got a strength and conditioning background, and you've chosen to go into teaching. I thought he's either an idiot or he's brave. And <laughs> And I'd like, you know, the, the, the kids that you deal with will be in good hands because you've got this open mind and there, there's a start. There's a start. So well done on everything. And certainly on doing 35, this is this number 36, is it? This is number 35.
0: Number 35. Well, blimey.
1: Okay. Let's hope it, they don't all cancel it after this
0: one. <laughs> I'm sure they won't. I'm sure they won't. Anyway, Calvin, I'm going to uh, stop the recording now. but Thank you very much for your time. I seriously appreciate it.
1: That's all right, mate. You take care. I'm going to shoot off now. It's time It's time for bed here in Brisbane. No problem. Thank you very much for your time,
0: Kelvin. Hey, mate. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode 35 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, as always, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Kelvin Charles. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could make the time to leave us a podcast review via your preferred podcast platform and share this podcast with a coach, an athlete or a teacher who you feel would benefit from listening if you want to go one better in terms of supporting the podcast then you can head it over to my patreon page where signing up will provide you with exclusive access to my continually growing exercise library all the educational strength conditioning content that I've released exclusively and finally my programs which will help expand the movement toolbox of your athletes Something I'm particularly passionate about, as you can probably tell from my conversation with Kelvin, is the ability to improve movement skill in children. And I've created Calisthenics Kids, which is 30 live or was live, 30 live lessons designed to improve strength, confidence and movement skill in children using bodyweight only training. There's also a ton of other programs uh, on there to help you improve the athleticism of the athletes and kids that you work with. So you can check that out at www.patreon.com forward slash Todd P2P coaching. Thank you very much for your support and for tuning in today. I'll catch you again in the next episode.